Welcome to listen to the first ever episode of the Refashioning the Renaissance podcast. My name is Paula Hohti and I'm an assistant professor of art and culture history at Aalto University School of Arts, Design and Architecture and I'm a principal investigator for this project. In our Refashioning the Renaissance project we are investigating how fashion developed in 16th century Europe. And um, instead of focusing on, on the very wealthy elites, like most studies do, our project focuses on the ordinary people looking at what happened at the level of artisans and shopkeepers and small-scale traders. What is uh, new and dynamic about our project is that it's it's not only that we are looking at lower classes and fashion, but we also want to combine traditional historical research with hands-on experimentation on materials, techniques and objects. And this means that we are reconstructing things we want to test with scientific analysis of existing textile objects and so forth. We are collaborating with several wonderful scholars and we plan to do a series of podcasts uh, talks to share. Today we are talking about experimentation with historical materials and techniques and thinking about what this kind of hands-on experimentation means for historians and, and how can we use it as a source, in as a method in historical research. This approach has gained recently quite a lot of prominence, for example, through Pamela Smith's Making and Knowing project in, in Columbia University. But today, I am so pleased that our wonderful member of advisory board, Professor John Stiles, has agreed to come and discuss this topic with us today. Very warm welcome, John. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. John Stiles is a professor of um, history at Hartford Shared University and uh, a research fellow at the Victorian and Albert Museum. And John, you have actually been engaging with these so-called hands-on experimental methods already for quite a long time and combining your historical work, working with a various range of historical sources with um, experimental methods. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience with the experimental methods and how have you used these, for example, in your spinning wheel, recent spinning wheel project and your other work? Okay, well, maybe I can start by saying a little about how I came to this, because as you said, these methods have become more familiar and popular among scholars, not just historians, but museum scholars, uh, specialists in material culture, art historians, and so on, in the last couple of decades. Uh, I started off as a traditional social historian, working with written sources, uh, manuscripts and printed sources. And I, um, But I then moved out of the university sector, and in the 1990s started teaching the history of design, at the Victoria and Albert Museum, where there's a well-known um, graduate program in the history of design. And I was always telling my history of design students how important it was to link words and objects. So when I started on a project that ended up as my book, The Dress of the People, which is about the clothing of ordinary people in 18th century England, I was looking for opportunities to work not just with archives, I worked with criminal records, probate records, um, newspaper advertisements for runaways and so on, but also with surviving objects, 
But sadly, uh, as far as the poor are concerned, there weren't many surviving objects. The V&A, where I was working, had some wonderful, wonderful garments, for both for men and women, from the 18th century, but not much for poor people. Um, so I went on a search, and by um, really by coming across work on the history of childhood, I found that there were literally thousands and thousands of pieces of textiles uh, that had been left by uh, women uh, who abandoned their babies at the London Foundling Hospital in the middle years of the 18th century. Um, there were, there were linens, cottons, woolens, all the range of textiles that uh, women in particular wore uh, in 18th century England, and they corresponded to many in their names and their, and, and their descriptions to many of the fabrics I was finding in the written records. Um, but I then had to work out how to think about, how to deal with these textiles. I mean, how do you, I, I was not trained as a textile specialist, and that really led me into looking for techniques uh, to uh, apply to the material record that would help me make sense of it in conjunction with the written records. I think the part of this that really excited me was the possibility of using the material sources to extend what the written records tell us and using the written records to extend what the material evidence tells us. Um, and I was helped in that by... Um, a number of textile specialists, those people in the textile and dress department at the V&A, who were terrific, and I'd advise anybody working in this field to really go and talk to museum people uh, who have enormous expertise. Um, I was also helped by uh, textile specialists in other universities, textile te technical experts, um, and one of them in particular put me on to uh, a new development of the 1990s, which is the uh, digital microscope that works through the USB port of a, of a, a personal computer, a, a portable computer. Um, and it's quite small. It's only uh, about four or five centimetres long. And so it's very portable. You can take it into archives and you can look at textiles through it and they're blown up 50, 60, 70 times. So you can actually begin to look at the structure of the textile in terms of threads, uh, in terms of the, uh, the fibres that are being used. And I found that enormously helpful. Um, in, let, let me give two uh, examples. Um, first of all, these, um, these microscopes enable you to take all sorts of measurements. So, for instance, they make it very easy to measure the weave density of the fabric. In other words, to establish a, a, a figure for just how dense or how loose the weave is, how fine or how coarse the fabric is. And being able to do that means you can compare the coarseness of the fabrics worn by ordinary people, because these fabrics left with the babies at the London Family Hospital were generally left by very poor women. You really are getting into the, uh, the poorest sections of the 18th century London population. And, of course, the V&A have these wonderful dresses uh, and other garments worn by wealthy women. Uh, and we often know which wealthy women bought them. They're often provenanced. And you can make comparisons of just how coarse the clothes worn by one group was compared with the clothes worn by another. Uh, but we could also... It, it, these microscopes also allowed me to do, uh, to do things like um, establish whether... 
a, a piece of fabric was made from a single material or a mixed material, and it became rapidly clear that one of the ways of democratising high fashion in the 18th century in England was to uh, make fabrics out of mixtures of a more expensive and a cheaper material. So they'd mix cotton with linen. Linen was very cheap, cotton was more expensive. And then using the two together, you could make a fabric which could um, be printed with the sorts of designs that you found on, uh, on even on silk garments uh, at a price which these poor women uh, could afford, perhaps not for their everyday wear, but as their, their Sunday best, their holiday clothes, as they called them in the 18th century. So it really helped me think about how fashion was democratised, which was clearly a matter of manipulating the way the fabrics were made to get them down to a price that was accessible for poor people. Yeah, and that's the sort of knowledge that you can really only get by combining the, the surviving objects with, with that's right. documentary evidence. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then I've gone on from there um, with a new project, which really came out of that study of ordinary people's clothing, which was a study of consumption. But doing this work with the textiles made me think more and more about how they were made. So I then followed up with a project on, um, on spinning, uh, particularly uh, on spinning in the period leading up to the Industrial Revolution, that, uh, as, as historians and, 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 and textile scholars are well aware, there's an enormous amount of study being devoted to the Industrial Revolution over the last you know, 200 years. Uh, it's one of the big subjects in, uh, in textile and fashion and economic history. Um, but it, most of the effort tends to go into thinking about the new machines and the new products and the new factories and the workers who, who toiled in the new factories. Much less attention is paid to what happened before. It's just assumed that these uh, spinners who worked with spinning wheels in their own cottages were unskilled, uh, poorly paid workers who were the... Um, the victims of history, but history moves forward and technology moves forward and they just got pushed aside and they're, they're, they're rather ignored. And I thought, my thought was that we need to actually pay more attention uh, because I was finding that the, the looking through the microscope of these fabrics, the yarns uh, being used were very, very different from fabric to fabric. Or you combined one yarn and another yarn that were both didn't look as if they'd been spun in the same way when you looked at them in detail at, at 60 times magnification. So off I went and I, I, I embarked on this project on spinning. Um, and one of my approaches to that was to... Um, was to go and talk to spinners. I mean, I learnt to spin by hand, and I can spin, but only very badly. But I think even learning to, to do the process, to, to learn to actually do it yourself, helps you understand the issues at stake in the past. I don't think you have to necessarily get very good at it, I'd love to be very good at spinning, but it doesn't really matter. The main thing is that you appreciate what the opportunities, the problems, uh, the limitations and the strengths are. So I went and learned to spin. Um, and the fact that I found it hard suggested to me that spinning was a very skilled 
occupation for these women before the coming of the factory. Uh, and there were many different skills. So it was different spinning linen from spinning cotton or spinning wool. Uh, and actually, it wouldn't be that easy to transfer between them all. But there was a limit to how far in, in a, uh, I went on a course in Leiden in the Netherlands for a week. There's a limit to how much you could learn in one week. So I thought it's very important that I talk to people who are really good at this and understand it and have worked on it for years. And in Britain, uh, there are, across the country, uh, guilds of, in other words, uh, clubs for uh, spinners, weavers and dyers with a big membership with people for whom this is their, their favourite hobby. Uh, and I made contact with a number of these people. I mean, and they were absolutely delighted to help. I mean, these are people who, well, part of learning to spin and their hobby is feeling that they're part of a historical tradition, which, I mean, like many crafts, people who do the crafts as a hobby, they feel connected to uh, those people before industrialization who performed the same activities. Um, so they were really interested and really helpful. And um, I organized a day at the Cloth Workers Center at the V&A, which is where all the uh, historic textiles are stored and they can bring them out. And we, we organized a day where I brought out a lot of the fabrics uh, dating from the late 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and I brought in five spinners with their spinning wheels. Uh, and we used the electronic, the USB microscopes, to project uh, microscopic images of blown-up images, if you like, of the textiles onto a screen, and then got the spinners to talk about how those yarns would have been spun. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, I learned so much about what would have been easy, what would have been difficult, which piece of equipment, which spinning wheel would have been right for which yarn. Um, and sometimes they disagreed, which is even better. It was great when the spinners, one spinner would say, no, no, they couldn't have done it. One would say, yes, they could have. And then they dis in their discussion about how it would have been done, uh, you learnt a lot about the problems of a particular technique, of a, using a particular type of spinning wheel. So I think there's a great deal to be learnt by cooperating with um, amateur enthusiasts, in not just for spinning, but for any of these uh, forms of textile craft. Because even though the materials we use now are obviously different, they're much more regular than was the two in the past, the, the equipment, the spinning wheels in this case, work differently because we have things like ball bearings now and proper lubricants. Nevertheless, so you can never entirely get back to the way it was, and I think one has to be realistic about that. And I think the best reenactors in any field are realistic about that. But by making the attempt, by doing your best to try and get back to how it was, even if ultimately you know failure is your, is your <laughs> destiny. Uh, you learn so much by making the attempt and taking it really seriously. And so I'm, I'm, I owe a great deal to these, uh, all these amateur spinners and weavers and dyers out there who, uh, who, not just at my day at the V&A, but when I've talked to them on other occasions and been in touch with them, have been so helpful and so supportive. And I think that's... It, it doesn't... They, by saying they're amateurs and they're enthusiasts, it sounds terribly unscientific. But actually, in many ways, those are the people from whom I've learnt the most... Uh, because they have the hands-on knowledge 
that I needed and I lacked. Yeah, and what I think is is really great also that, I mean, we can benefit so much of, of their expertise, but these kind of experimental hands-on methods have also brought sort of different communities together. So yeah. it has bridged the gaps between conservators, curators, reenactors, yes. amateurs, craft people, and, and so many other instances. So I, I think that's also very important because we have so much to learn from each other either way and and i think that's also one very important aspect of it yes i think that's i think that's exactly right and i think and it also means that in a project like this which in the end is being you know these projects both my project and uh, and your 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 renaissance project are being you know are being funded by the public across europe that what this working with this diversity of people means is that you're giving back to all sorts of different people either directly in the case of the amateurs or indirectly through museums through universities and i think that's important that we that if we're going to do this work and be and have the funding provided to do it that we are offering something back to if not the whole of the general public at least important sections of it mm. Um, and, and I think, as, as, as you've seen from what I've described, when I think of experimental work in this field, and I suppose the, the, the closest analogy is experimental archaeology. Archaeologists have been doing this for many, many decades. But I think it's, it, it extends from um, what one might describe as the most scientific, which is what I described when I talked about looking through the microscope at the textiles left at the Foundling Museum, where one's measuring the density of the weave, one's measuring the twist of the yarn. Uh, this is the stuff of scientific textile analysis, so it's the sort of thing that goes on in textile factories today. They still do exactly this, uh, using rather similar methods, in fact. Um, but it, at the other extreme is working with these amateur groups where you're drawing on craft skill it's it's less science and measure in the sense of measurement it's more engaging with the tacit knowledge that only only experienced practitioners in the field mm -hmm. actually enjoy so i think i think experimental work can extend you know across that whole spectrum mm. from the most uh, the most scientific in the narrow sense of of uh, quantitative measurement to the at the other extreme a kind of engagement with people's long experience of working with their hands in mm. various media yeah i mean we can talk about technical analysis of objects and combine that with our historical work that that of course then means that we are working with kind of surviving objects yeah. And um, in, in the case of our project and, and like in the case of your Dress of the People project, the, the challenge is very often that we don't have these surviving things. I mean, you were fortunate, to, extremely fortunate to have these beautiful founding textiles, which then became this very beautiful exhibition later on. But the challenge is, of course, sometimes to find these objects. So um, then uh, we can talk about reconstruction, which is then that we are not talking about existing objects, but we are trying to recreate something, mm, make, yeah. perhaps make visible something that we don't have. It's a field which which is very active at the moment. It's a, a lot of people are engaging with reconstructing, for example, uh, 16th century recipe books to bring processes alive or bring the products alive. Um, 
What, what do you think are, are the challenges, benefits, pitfalls of that? <laughs> well, I think this is, this is a very interesting area. And I, as, as a historian, say, 20, 30 years ago, I visited some reenactor sites and uh, I'd visited Colonial Williamsburg when I was an undergraduate, uh, when I visited, uh, went to the United States. And Colonial Williamsburg is, in a sense, the heartland of this sort of thing in, in America, uh, where, where reconstructing historical garments has been going on in a very, in a very careful, historically informed way, has been going on for a very, a very long time. And I'm afraid to say, when 20, 30 years ago, I was very snobbish about it, and I regarded it as rather questionable, shall we say, and I was completely wrong. I think I was being really blind and blinkered. Uh, and I now think that if it's done, it's like anything, if it's done badly, then it's, it's, it, it, it's done badly and it's not worth thinking about. But if it's done well, it can be enormously uh, revealing. Um, and in a sense, in, in rather the, a lot of the same issues arise that we've just discussed in relation to uh, scientific uh, and other forms of analysis of objects because you never can reconstruct the past the past is un, un, and as historians we know that we, we our, our task is we are Janus faced we face backwards and forwards at the same time in a sense we we explain the past to the present but to do so we we have to do it in terms that the present understands And in terms of reconstruction, we're trying to reconstruct the past, but we're doing it with materials and tools that bear the mark of now, that are of the present. You can't go back necessarily completely to the sort of fibres that were grown in a flax field in 16th century northern Italy. You can't go back uh, to the spinning wheel that was being used in 17th century England. Uh, it's you can get close, but you can never completely reconstruct the, that whole world. But by trying to do so and, and, and thinking about it hard and trying to do so seriously, you can understand a lot of uh, the problems and challenges and opportunities that people at the time had. And you can bring it alive for a broader audience today. I mean, I, I, I think one of the best lectures I've heard in the last 10 or 15 years was by Jenny Turamani, uh, her lecture on uh, uh, undressing an Elizabethan woman, uh, which was quite exceptional in, in it, it's, it, the care with which she'd thought about the way the clothing was put together and the way she communicated it using... She had a young man dressed as a woman, as would have been the case on the... Uh, Elizabethan stage on a, for one of Shakespeare's plays uh, in a, around 1600 and she really showed the audience just how these forms of clothing work the pinning as opposed to sewing uh, the complication of being how long it took to put them on and how long it took to take them off it was absolutely wonderful and I think that that, that showed to me that the, the potential for Uh, using reconstruction to explain things. I saw this lecture presented in the V&A's lecture theatre, which holds maybe 300 people, and they were just captivated. So it was absolutely wonderful. So I haven't done as much of this sort of thing as someone like Jenny Tiramani, or as much as, as, as you will be doing, you were, you were doing for the Renaissance project. But I mean, partly because 
as you said, we were very lucky in finding the founding textiles and being able to analyse them. So I had the originals there to work with. So the pressure on me to work through reconstruction was rather less than it is the further back in time you go when the surviving the survivals are, uh, are far fewer. But we did, in fact, uh, when I did an exhibition called Threads of Feeling, which was an exhibition of the Foundling Hospital textiles, um, which was put on in London at the Foundling Museum and then later went to Colonial Williamsburg in uh, Virginia in the United States. For that exhibition, um, the team involved, uh, myself and the others from the Foundling Museum, did have one of the fabrics uh, recreated. Uh, and we did that by... Uh, fo- fo- I mean, the, the, the textiles were quite small, the originals. Um, and we, had, uh, we took a printed textile uh, with a small repeat a small device which was repeated across the surface of the textile. We photo- photographed it, photoshopped it up, and then it was silk screened by, uh, silk screen printed by a printing collective, a cooperative printing firm in South London. Um, now, this firm was doing a lot of silk screen printing on textiles, particularly on calico. And they printed it, this device, this design, initially on big sheets of calico. It was a very fine modern calico, rather like a modern fine piece of sheeting, percal sheeting, and it looked terrible. Uh, and the reason it looked terrible is that the 18th, in the 18th century, this design had been printed onto a cloth that was quite coarse because it was for the market of the lower end of the market, people who didn't, weren't, couldn't afford to buy the finer cloths, which were much more expensive. So we went off to a department store in London and we bought some curtain lining, which was very coarse. Again, it was cotton, a cotton fabric, but very coarse. And we then printed it onto this cotton lining, this cotton curtain lining. It looked terrific. And and that meant we could then use it, uh, use the fabric. Uh, We made up a bed gown and we had a dummy in the exhibition dressed in a bed gown to show what one of these uh, the mothers of these children would have been, would, might have been dressed like. But what I took away from that, what that taught me, was that 18th century textile designers, particularly designers of printed textiles, the people who designed the, the patterns that would be carved into blocks to be printed on the textile, were very, very conscious and, and well aware of what suited uh, different fabrics, that if you print a particular design on too fine a fabric or too coarse a fabric, it doesn't look good. They were very good at judging what sort of design would be right for the, for the, for the fabric they had available, which would depend on the market they were targeting. Was it going to be a cheap market or an expensive market? And if I hadn't done that reconstruction, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have actually realised that. But it just became blindingly obvious once we printed the design on the wrong fabric. It mm. just looked terrible. Yeah. So fantastic innovations towards sort of fashion and demo- especially democratization yes. of fashion, like you say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we are we are both very fortunate in the sense that we have been given extensive funding for our projects, which means that we can employ people, we can hire and use other people's expertise and, and connect with a lot of people in our research. And like we have talked about before, that it's very important for both of us also to combine this experimental hands-on with 
historical evidence, both yes. quantitative and yes. qualitative. So, so how how important it is when we do these reconstructions and think about what they mean, that we also have these other types of historical evidence that we can measure these against. Yes. And, yeah. And I think one thing to remember even for, say, uh, students who are interested in doing this sort of work, is that you can do... Obviously, the funding helps, especially when you get into the sort of projects like Pamela Smith's project at Columbia in New York, the Making and Doing project, which relies on having a laboratory, having being able to purchase the materials to do a variety of scientific uh, tests on them. But even research students who don't have huge grants can get out there and talk to these amateur enthusiasts who are often doing these craft activities, uh, which costs them nothing. Mm. And yet these people, in my experience, are very, very keen to help and advise. Mm, yes. So I think this is a tech, this, elements of this approach are available to all scholars in the field to some degree or another. And it's something I'd, I'd really like more and more people to go and, uh, and do. Because it, and it has the benefit not only of giving us new forms of knowledge, but it also has the benefit of projecting the historical work we're doing out to bigger audiences who are very keen to, to hear about it. Mm, to hear about it and to participate. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, John Style. I've very much enjoyed this conversation with you and very many thanks for sharing your expertise and experience and your views with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>